Hi everyone, welcome to Ta for Ta. Today we have Carol Lee Rafferty from the Yale Center Beijing. In our candid conversation, we learn more about her lean-in circle and personal network, as well as her professional endeavors. We dig into pressing issues faced at the World Economic Forum and how China and Chinese women are stepping up on an international scale. Stay tuned to Lean In with Carol. We really just wanted to dive right in today and ask you about your experience with Lean In. Thank you.、Um, thank you for having me.、Um, the experience with Lean In has just been phenomenal.、Um, starting it in 2013、uh, with a bunch of young Chinese professional women as well as some expats. Um, we just kind of glued together because we read、um, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In,、um, got really inspired and excited, and wanted to start、um, a circle. And、um, it's become、um, the first,、uh, what we believe to be the first circle in China. And now it has grown to a community of over a hundred thousand women throughout China、um, across nine universities. And I think you know, from the time when we were just you know, eight of us in a little room, we meet, we met at you know various、um, people's members' apartments.、Um, we talked about the trials and challenges that we're facing personally and at work, and kind of growing that into such a large community has just been you know amazing because you know we had no clue at the beginning how how much of a need there had been. Um, and there has been, given the growth that we've experienced, and I think, and and when we started the、um, organization, what we did was we did a survey of around six、uh, hundred women to find out what people are looking for in a community such as this, and based on the feedback that people would really like to have more opportunities for mentorship,、um, leadership training, people want to gain confidence,、um, they want to gain the guts, the courage. To be able to do things, we oriented all our programming around that, and it has really、um, made a lot of progress. So, just really proud of what、um, the organization, what each of us has done through those years. And we're so proud of you too. Why do you think that Lean In Circles had the resounding success that they did in China? Do you think there's something specific about this space in China? It like filled a need that young women or professional women had at the time. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, and I think um, when we had、uh, when we launched the survey, we also launched、uh, something called the Lean In Circle event, where invited people to experience what a circle is like、um, in a group format. You know, even just the first time of marketing it、um, and promoting it as an event, about ninety women signed up. We divided everyone into groups of eight and nine people, and I think what、um, resonated with people. Especially with the post '80s and post '90s generation, is that most of them came from、um, families with single child. They don't have sisters or brothers, and having this natural community of people that they can connect with、um, actually makes for something that、um, a lot of people are lacking in their lives: that companionship,、uh, that sisterhood.、Um, what's also very interesting is that. Um, in this environment, where it's very competitive at schools, it's very competitive at work. I think people find it hard to open up to people that immediately surround them, even parents、um, sometimes or classmates. So to provide that safe space 
where you know people are supposed to be confidential. It's supposed to um, create a secure environment where people can share all. And a lot of times, these people first start out as strangers um, without any ties to one another. But having the commonality of you know we experience the same challenges and issues um, kind of bonded everyone together, and I think that really contributed to the growth of the community. So. The lean-in circles are based on a framework created by Sheryl Sandberg. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about her philosophy that you don't ascribe to? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's um, that's a very interesting question. Um, and actually, the concept of her circles have been used in other organizations, um, and it, it basically creates a personal board of advisors. What I think is very useful about this concept is that I think throughout life, I think each of us, whether we're in a lean in circle or not, I think it's a great idea to have sounding boards and people that can encourage you and share um, similar experiences. So, you know, you have a reference point from which to um, improve yourself and make yourself better. I think, you know, some of the, um, I think she has encountered some um, other opinions, especially in the U.S., because, you know, for people, for women with families, not everybody can afford um, help and, you know, all that um, sort of support to be able to truly lean in in their careers. Um, and I think what's very, what was very interesting is that, you know, Cheryl, given the trials and tribulations that she has been through with her husband's death, when, with I mean, now she has a new book called Option B. I think, you know, she's saying, you know, lean in. Leaning in is, of course, something that she encourages, but um, it's not leaning in all the time. And I think I very much agree with that, that I think everyone has a different situation. Um, even people from different countries and people in different societies face different challenges. And I think, um, and, and that's why um, I think with Lean in China, we retool the mission and what we do a little bit. And we say, um, we want to encourage everyone to pursue her own definition of success rather than a conventional measure of, oh, I must be a leader in business and politics and all the male-dominated male spheres. I think each of us, we can be um, the best sister, the best daughter, the best mother, all of that, and still you know, achieve you know, your own definition and success, and that's what we're trying to um, espouse. So I think one of the most meaningful experiences mm -hmm. for us here in China was the opportunity to meet with the Tsinghua University mm -hmm. Women's Lean-In Circle. Mm -hmm. It was an opportunity, I think, for real discourse about what are the issues facing women in the U.S. and what are the issues facing women in China. And one of the things that was brought up was this issue that Chinese women face about pursuing further education and becoming a PhD and how they're seen as less desirable within society, mm -hmm. um, at least from a social perspective. Are there any other issues that are China-specific that women are facing today? Oh, I think so. Um, and I think there, there are China-specific ones as well as um, issues that link us globally. The China-specific ones um, that... I find interesting um, as someone who did not grow up here but have lived here for the past decade um, is the pressure to get married um, at a certain age because um, I think what you mentioned about you know women PhDs being a separate separate category separate gender um, is very interesting because it's actually poking fun of the fact that they may be less uh, marriageable 
or less desirable as marriage material. And I think, you know, it's something that uh, we at Lean in China definitely work on in terms of um, once marital status does not define one's worth and one's definition of success, um, and that you know there's more beyond life, beyond you know whether you have a family, whether you have children, where you're whether you're married or not, your sexual orientation, um, whatever that is. I think uh, the pressure towards marriage really comes from uh, parents and older generations because. You know, I think in in the past, um, in you know, before urbanization, people do, are expected to marry at very early ages, uh, 22, 24, 25. But those are exactly the ages where you know you're supposed to explore in your career. You're supposed to take risks. That's the best time to do so um, before you even think of starting the family. So I think that's a particular challenge um, that. Uh, Chinese women face in terms of uh, familial pressure. I want to ask you and pivot a little bit towards your professional experience because I've been incredibly impressed of how you've moved back and forth between private and public spaces. What's been the most difficult part of that transition? I would say the most difficult part for me initially was actually the language and the way that uh, people are oriented uh, towards uh, working towards a common goal. Um, I think in the public sector, um, I think goals are very different than in the private sector. In a way, in the private sector, um, you see that um, you know it's about maximizing uh, shareholder value, uh, maximizing profit. In, in, in that case, you can say both it's very mercenary, but it's also very clear-cut. And I think in the public sector, I think uh, with all governments or big organizations, it's about mobilizing a lot of people towards uh, common goals. And mobilizing people itself is a challenge when um, there's no profit motive or there's something else going on. So um, I, think, I think it's very interesting to have been in all these different spheres and I think, um, you know, I think there are advantages and disadvantages to both, and I think we need both um, for a society to be healthy. And how do you think mobilizing people mm-hmm. as a kind of main goal of like public sectors around the world is different in the Chinese context versus the American context? Do you feel like there's a different culture of um, appealing to society to kind of work towards a common goal? Um, I think yes and no, because I think in China, given you know the advent of WeChat, um, of Zhibo, live webcast, and all these different tools, um, I think you know just as in the U.S. now, um, I mean Twitter is old, Facebook is old now, so, you know it's Snapchat, <laughs> Instagram. There are all these new tools to um, you know. What we can say is mobilize people towards a common goal, or to appeal to people, um, to uh, draw people's interests into something. Um, and I think what I think is fascinating is that technology is really propelling the growth of tools that people are using. So actually, everybody's attention is very—you um, know—there are a lot of things that draw people's attention. 
and um, it's very diversified. And so actually, I feel like to catch people's attention, you always you, you almost need to work a lot harder in this day and age. I mean, in China, it's the degree of scale that's very different from the U.S. And I think in the U.S., it's the degree of the difference um, and, and the diversity in content where, you know, it's very hard to catch people's attention. And so I think what was very, what has been very powerful about the Lean in China community is that we start from the individual and we start with the face-to-face -face. and um, from the face-to-face -face and kind of magnifying it to communities. Um, for example, what you mentioned to be the Tsinghua Lean in Circles, the University Lean in Circles, were um, touching on like a zeitgeist um, the spirit of the times that you know women want something different. Um, we want to pursue our own definitions of success. Not all of us want to get married. Not all of us, not all of us, or not all of us want to have careers. Some of us want to be full-time um, parents. So um, I think it's also tapping into kind of the spirit of the times, and you know that makes for a really strong momentum in terms of uh, mobilizing people. I completely agree. I think there was a quote mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be looking to have it all. You should mm -hmm. be looking to have your all. Right. And I think that is something that has stuck with me, at mm -hmm. least when I've been trying to pursue my career and personal mm -hmm. endeavors. And I'm actually curious, how do you go about building your professional and personal network? Mm -hmm. What are the types of people that you're gravitated to? I just am trying to understand a snapshot of this support structure that you create for yourself. Um... I think there are, it's twofold. Uh, one is, you know, I think each of us just meet people we naturally enjoy being with because of similar values and similar ambitions. And I think, um, you know, for myself, it has been very easy to actually find people with similar ambitions um, and also people with similar values. But actually finding both um, people with similar values and similar ambitions um, can be difficult. And so I think in whichever professional setting, whether professional, whether I'm going to a conference or I'm getting to know new friends, that's part of it. I think the other part of it is really trying to listen and um, ask questions and really be um, interested in every, every person uh, because every person is a 1,000 page book. I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, the Lean in China community has grown, or I have been able to build my personal and professional network as well, is really a genuine interest in people and people just um, enjoying the connection and being able to share his or her own story. I think that's very important. Um, uh, that personal connection that you make um, when you're doing a face-to-face -face and um, when you're really able to connect in some way that's beyond just you know, okay, well, why are we here and all of that? But it's, why are you here? What do you care about? What keeps you up at night? I think those are the things where, you know, once you, it's almost like a Pandora's box, and once you open it, I think, you know, you just find that um, really miraculous connection with another person. Is there a story that stuck with you in building Lean In, a story of an individual? Let me think a little bit about that. Take your time. It's <laughs> a hard question. Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, I think part of the essence of the circle is that we actually, the stories that we tell one another, we, they're confidential. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I'm at liberty to share stories, but I would say that one thing that I'm really grateful for in terms of 
you know, being able to get to know certain people very um, in a very meaningful way is, for example, um, Lean in China's um, current advisory board chair, a uh, woman, Jane Sun, mm-hmm. who is uh, CTRIP's CEO. She's someone that, you know, I have really gotten to know um, a lot better over the past few years of founding Lean In. And also, um, we've been uh, fellows together in the Aspen Institute China Fellows Program. And that's also one, um, you know, I told her about what we're doing in Lean In China, the surveys we've been doing, and she has been just so, so supportive of all of those efforts. I think each of us um, have male and female role models, but they're usually people that we may not know or we put up on a pedestal. But I think what's really special about her is that, you know, being able to know her personally, you know, she's such an amazing um, manager, uh, mother, you know, sister to to all of us. And um, I think, you know, there's this, you know, there are many models of success. Some of my role models include Christian Lagarde and, you know, everybody, and everybody has a different style. Um, And I think, you know, knowing Jane personally, even knowing her daily schedule very, very well in terms of, um, you know, when she sleeps, when she spends time at home, when she does her conference calls, all of that. um, I think it has been, you know, really, really helpful just um, for me to see that um, and, and I think for everyone to see that, you know, this can be done. Um, I think women can have it all. Um, you can have your all, like you said. Yeah. yeah. Do you think Chinese women can have it all in the public sector? I think so. I think if there is the will, I think it's more, um, it, I think it's more a matter of time it can be. And it's because I think in the public sector, again, there are different dynamics going on than in the private sector where I think the goals are less clear-cut. So, for example, I think in the private sector, um, P&G, GE China, um, C-Trip, DD, they're all headed by women. And I think in the public sector, precisely because of the differences in alignment that you would see in multiple people having different goals, and, you know, it is true that, you know, in China, as in many other countries in the world, government has traditionally been male-dominated. And I think um, in a place where um, there are multifarious goals, you know, economic development, uh, (laughs) environmental pollution and all of that, I think it's just, um, it makes for a more difficult situation to be like, okay, you're just evaluated on how much profit you generate or how much sales you achieve. Um, I think it just makes for kind of a more complex setting. But I do think that where there is a will, there is a way. And I think it's more the matter of encouraging more women to step up uh, and run for office or put themselves in the path to be going for an office. And I think what's very heartening is that recently both Hong Kong and Taiwan have female leaders. And I think uh, that's a very encouraging sign. So you're saying that the public sector, it's more difficult to find objective metrics Mm -hmm. to measure success. Yeah. And this very much ties into um, a study that Yale University just did. How fitting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Professor Frances Rosenbluth from the Political Science Department, she uh, she did a study on women in the global workplace and how actually perception... uh, 
objective, um, having objective measures versus perception actually really changes how managers um, kind of decide who to promote. So in a global survey of about um, 5,000 people from 100 countries, what she found was that all managers pretty much prefer employees that are able to work around the clock. And that really disadvantages uh, women because in most countries, women get the lion's share of household chores, child care, um, you know, uh, family care responsibilities. But when these employers or when these um, uh, respondents are presented with productivity data of, oh, whether this person is productive or not, without regard to, then the um, availability around the clock decreases in importance, actually becomes very unimportant because actually people care about productivity on the objective measures. So what's very interesting is that in workplaces or in environments where there are more objective measures of success or factors for promotion, that's where you can have more a more gender-neutral kind of lens of evaluating whether um, someone should be in a leadership position or whether someone is promoted to that. And in, in places where it's more complex, it just makes for a more difficult environment. And I'm glad that you that you brought up this study because um, at Schwarzman College we talk a lot about how women hold a path to sky and mm-hmm. some of our scholars jokingly said that women hold a path to sky and more because of the household duties that right. they have on top of it. <laughs> right. And I just wonder... Like, what do you think is holding Chinese society back from gender equality within the home? Do you think um, it's a question of generation? Do you think it's a question, are there cultural barriers to this? And do you see changes coming about with young men these days? How, how is this discussion taking place? That's such an, an interesting question because within the survey setting that we did at Yale, um, we also compared across East Asian cu- countries in terms of people's perception of where child, like whether the male or female should bear child care responsibilities. China is actually the place with the lowest um, in terms of people actually think, you know, maybe women should spend 55%. Per, um, let me see, I think it's actually the split of time let's say the father and the mother should spend on childcare. And in China, the perception is that the right balance is women 55 and men 45. Whereas a place like Japan or Korea, it would be 70 women versus um, 30 men. But but it's still not 50-50. And I think it really comes from the traditional division of responsibilities. When um, equal pay, I believe, is still a global issue, um, when it makes more sense for a the man to stay in a job economically than a woman to, I think it's a natural decision for most families to be like, okay, children needs to be taken care of. And in, in places where grandparents or child care support are not as readily available, it's natural for um, a family as an economic decision for the man to stay in the job and the female to go home or um, take up more household responsibilities. I think in terms of the future generations, let's say the post-80s, post-90s, post-2000 generations, I think the fact that I think when we demand more, when we look for our life's partner, I think I think men would change too. Um, there's, of course, the he for she campaign. I really think of it as, you know, 
we humans helping one another campaign, really. <laughs> it's really not just he for she or she for he, but, you know, I think, you know, when each of us look for whether female or male partners, we should be looking for people. I mean, if, you know, some people may want a career, some people may not think a career is an important thing, and for those of us who do, we should be looking for partners who care about, um, you know, helping us be our all. Um, and I think that's very important, and I think everyone, I think people's perceptions will change, and, and I think people's behaviors would change if we start asking for it, looking for it. So. <laughs> it's funny you bring up he for she. We've been joking around that the title of this podcast, Ha for Ta, is quite convenient with the Chinese language right. because it's it's ambiguous. You know, yeah. if it's he, she, it, it's humanity for humanity. Yeah. Um, so... You brought up in terms of professional context how it's important to be going to conferences and being active, being out there in the community. Um, I think an incredible part of your experience is going to the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. Can you first just tell us a little bit of what that experience was like? The World Economic Forum has really been an incredible experience. It's a place where leaders from all sectors are really convened to discuss and work on the most important and pressing issues facing our world, whether environment, economic development, to preservation of culture, languages, and all of that. And I think that is actually, I mean, I'm grateful that even in my day job, I get to do a lot of that as managing director of the Yale Center of Beijing, uh, because we're precisely, we're very similar to the World Economic Forum in that we're a hub for convening thought leaders from all sectors to dialogue on interesting issues. So one thing that we did very early on this year is um, President Salovey from Yale. Um, he was the person who spearheaded the concept of emotional intelligence and humanities education. And at Davos, he actually talked about the importance of humanities in the age of artificial intelligence. Um, what defines us as human? It's really kind of the language, the stories, the art and music that we create. We talked about the efforts that Yale and elsewhere with the Smithsonian at the World Economic Forum, how cultures um, are preserved and how do we prevent that. And that also, I think what's amazing about the World Economic Forum platform is that um, there are so many experts and leaders in all sectors where, um, for example, um, because of wars happening in different parts of the world, um, the preservation of culture, stories, and languages have really become a challenge. And so um, when you have gatherings like that, you're really able to have conversations where you're able to uh, create initiatives and solutions that are very comprehensive. For example, with the preservation of culture, you need people who are anthropologists. Um, you need people who are technologists to be able to archive um, all these things appropriately. You need people who are scientists, material scientists, to be able to preserve um, cultural artifacts and all of that. Um, for example, there are ways to um, clean the water here that, you know, a village in the Amazon used kind of, you know, a certain plant to do something, and it's actually the same planet that you can find in China, um, an environmentally sustainable way to clean water, for example, and create, um, it's actually a sponge um, that grows and, you know, absorbs all the toxins and actually plants can grow out of it or something. You just find solutions for things in places that you least expect them 
to um, happen. <laughs> and so I think that's really the value um, of a place like that. And so I would say it's both um, overwhelming because of the volume and the caliber of people that you're among, but it's also just so exhilarating to be in that kind of a community. So how do you think China is leaning in, at least in terms of getting a seat at the table, taking mm-hmm. on more responsibility in an international stage? Oops, I had to use that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that reference. Um, the prime example being um, President Xi speaking at the World Economic Forum at Davos this year and really championing a message of globalization and how, um, and, and I think it's in contrast in to other messages that have been put forth in the world. I think globalization, I think the very promising message is that you know, it has benefited huge swaths of population around the world. Um, I think a large, to a large degree, China's success with bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty has a lot to do with global trade, with globalization and trends. But of course, in multiple societies, there are also people who get adversely affected by these trends. Um, and I think, actually, because China is a place that has dealt with so many complex social issues, but at such a large scale. I think the China experience actually, um, it's not just about, let's say, China learning from the rest of the world. And I think it's a very interesting and inclusive message. Also, there's the uh, One Belt, One Road. There's One Belt, One Road. Mm -hmm. There's the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. There's taking a greater role in multinational institutions. You do see China stepping up. Yeah, and I think it's a very encouraging message. And of course, you know, just like the Lean In book, just like everything else, there are always people who are supporters and there are people who are naysayers. And I think, but I think what I'm hopeful about is I think the Chinese government is efficient in its own way and has been proven, has a proven track record of, of dealing with some issues. I think there are definitely issues that you know, we can work on, um, for example, the environment and all these things. And I think the government definitely has um, the will to do so. And it just remains to be seen what the results are um, here in China and elsewhere in the world. So you talk about this multi-sector approach. Mm -hmm. How do you think the Yale Center is serving the greater Beijing community? Mm -hmm. So um, each year we host about 200 events and programs most of which are open to the public, where we're drawing people together to talk about the most interesting or pressing issues facing society um, or China and the world right now. And, and these are topics that are talked about at Schwarzman College, at Tsinghua, at Fudan, all the major academic institutions and think tanks. But I think what's very interesting about Yasin or Beijing is that because of our location, um, right in the center of the center, uh, central business district, You know, a lot of our event participants, our speakers, our panelists um, have commented on how, for example, um, last year we had a symposium on China's new charity law, uh, which is really making waves. Is that the NGO law? Yeah, uh, actually the charity law is slightly different. Can you explain the difference between the two? Sure. The charity law um, really enables um, more charities, nonprofit organizations to be set up. And, and obtain um, certain uh, benefits, um, which is foreign, different from the foreign NGO law, uh, which is more um, focused on um, other types of organizations. And so with the charity law, what's very interesting is Chinese government really trying to encourage um, more individuals with 
a goal to make a social impact, to set up charitable organizations, and kind of it's a blueprint, and these are guidelines for how to do that. And what's very interesting is that, you know, there are workshops that happen at the Tsinghua University Law School, as well as the Yale Center Beijing. But what's special about the Yale Center Beijing is that, you know, whereas at Tsinghua you get mostly academics who debate about certain issues or certain parts of the law and all of that. But at the Yale Center Beijing, um, we get people from nonprofits, people from businesses who are interested in CSR work and corporate social responsibility. We get people who are, you know, people who are young professionals or uh, senior executives who are just interested in setting up their own charitable foundations and so on and so forth. And it's really a place where People from many different walks of life can really t- come together and share experiences of, of you know, how to do things, how to best practices, and how to move forward um, in different places, um, but with similar goals. Um, I think it just makes for a very helpful platform for many different kinds of people to come together. Yeah, I think the Yale Center is this hub building on that network concept that I think we've talked a lot about. Mm-hmm. Is there a direction that you think the Yale Center is going to go in a certain time horizon? What are you excited about for the Yale Center? Well, I'm very encouraged by one of our um, speakers saying that we've become an integral part of the intellectual infrastructure of Beijing. So we would like to continue to be that and also really focus on bringing really uh, valuable dialogues here um, kind of that connect China and the world with issues that connect all of us as humans. We have big topic areas such as planetary health because health is not just about we as humans and diseases. It's about mental health. It's about planetary health because the environment, um, environmental degradation and improving that also will help um, health and all health outcomes and all of that. So um, we're really integrating concepts across disciplines and also bringing together people from all sectors. And we just want to continue to do that um, and even better. Is there a dialogue that has resonated with you in a way that you weren't expecting? Mm-hmm. Um, let me think a little bit about that. I'm, I'm going to think aloud. Um, think aloud. Women, architecture, we had um, Microsoft's uh, chief research scientist come here to talk about the future. We have, we've had multiple talks about the future of artificial intelligence because um, at the center, a number of our founding donors and advisory committee members are um, people such as Neil Shun, Pony Ma, um, people who are at the forefront of technology and innovation. And, and it's just so interesting to hear all of them talk about how, you know, of course, AI, machine learning, these are all important things at, at the frontier of kind of the next age that humanity will face. But each of them, when they talk about kind of what's the most important for the future of education, they talk about humanities and our abilities to continue to be humans, to be creative, um, to use our skills to create things that are unique and to use our own unique abilities and the role of history and humanities. The, um, the role that they play in helping to shape all of that. Um, this has been consistent across dialogues that we've had with um, Joe Tai from Alibaba, um, Neil Shen, um, who heads up Sequoia Capital, Zhang Lei, who heads up Hill House Capital, all of which are alumni who have done very well um, investing in technology or in technology. But all of them have said, we're humans. And fundamentally, you know, even though we have you know, AI and machines helping us, 
to do um, things that you know they may do better, such as processing data um, and, and the volume of analysis that you need to do in this day and age with the volume of data that you have collected from devices, and, you know, all these different, A whole host <laughs> of different sources, channels. Um, it's so important to put the human touch to it, kind of the human, the, the, the maximizing the capacity of the human mind and kind of releasing that from the daily chores. Maybe household chores should be done by um, robots, but all of us are free to do, write poems, um, create music, and tell each other stories. I think that's fundamentally um, what's human. And actually, it's, technolo- it, it's due to technological advances that you know maybe we'll find who we are as humans. And I think that's a really interesting insight that I got uh, from a, a lot of the speakers that I've come through. Just out of curiosity to like draw this interview mm-hmm. to a close on a fun note, mm-hmm. um, I feel like the United States was characterized by a big debate on gender and politics this right. year. And I'm just wondering, what do you think China would look like if China's top leadership were only women? Or what would the World Economic Forum look like if one year most of the people they invited were women? Do you feel like the policies that would emerge would be significantly different? Do you feel like the debates would be framed differently? How do you think that world would look like? Well, I understand personally from a corporate setting that, um, or a financial um, industry setting that, where there are more females, um, people care a lot more about risks and kind of the negative fallouts from um, certain policy initiatives or things that happen. I think the world will become more inclusive in a way, um, and in a way that considers both the pros and cons um, very seriously. I think by the time that that happens, I don't think it will be an issue whether a leader is female or not or wherever that person comes from. Um, I think what's very interesting is the Elle magazine about one or two years ago did a Photoshop, uh, did photoshopped images of kind of important world summits Mm. without males and kind of, it's really, really sad to see kind of the... I'm thing. not saying that. Angela Merkel all by herself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or Christian Lagarde, um, no. you know, female leaders being few and far between. And I think I really look forward to the day when that is no longer an issue. Um, and I think that day will come. I think, you know, in, in, like I said, it's encouraging that... Hong Kong and Taiwan are both led by um, female leaders and increasingly in different parts of the world. I mean, Britain, um, Germany, um, many of the world's most important countries or most um, countries with, you know, a lot of momentum, they're now led by women. And just seeing, you know, for example, um, I have been uh, in conversations with the UK ambassador to China. She's a Yale alumna herself, and she's also the first UK ambassador to China. And now um, the UK prime minister is a female prime minister. Actually, post-Brexit and after Theresa May has come on board, um, Britain has really experienced a very interesting period of economic growth. People are now talking about a somewhat softer Brexit and a Brexit that where the negative uh, impact will be minimized or mitigated in some way. And I think that's a very important perspective to bring onto the table um, when there, when leadership in general is female, more diverse, uh, people from different ethnic backgrounds and all of that. And I think it will just make for a better world in general. I think this was incredibly interesting for Absolutely. me to learn 
just about all your different experiences and how they've impacted you, but also the greater impact on China. So we really appreciated the time. Yeah. Thank Pleasure. You so much. Thank <laughs> you. For having me. Thanks for listening today. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. As well, please feel free to reach out and give feedback at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. See you soon.